Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter 7 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled, The Five Precepts, A Householder's Guide to Daily Practice. This is where you learn some of the significant decisions that you could be making that will improve your ability to experience wholesome results. And you'll also learn decisions that you could be making that would be unwise, that would create unwholesome results. Oftentimes people translate the five precepts of the Buddha as no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, no intoxicants. But what you're going to see today is that's not actually true. That's not what the Buddha shared because that sounds like rules or commandments. But in reality, what you're going to see is the words of the Buddha and what he taught around these five precepts. And what it's going to help you do is to build your wisdom about the natural law of gamma so that more and more you can see this cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions and how you can make wiser and wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been tuning in regularly to learn these teachings. As I go in today's class, I'm going to be pausing at different times, essentially at the end of each precept as I share the teachings on that precept and provide you an opportunity to ask any and all questions you like about that specific precept. Because while you're learning the teachings, as I've always shared with you, you should be learning reflecting to independently verify, and then practicing to move the teachings into practice. So I can help you with the learning part, and I can even help you with the reflecting part here in class where you can start reflecting on the teachings. But you're gonna probably need to ask clarifying questions in order to understand and perhaps even apply it to certain situations that you have in your life. And then as you're practicing the teachings that you learn as part of this wisdom, you will see the improvement to the condition of the mind and the condition of your life as you experience more and more benefits from the wisdom that you've cultivated and that you're applying in life. And then as you need help in your practice, that's where you reach out to your teacher by either asking questions in classes, posting in the Facebook group, sending private message, or scheduling a personal guided session. And there more and more, I'll be able to help you apply these teachings to your daily life and what it is that you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So as we go, feel free to ask questions. Right now, we're able to live stream to YouTube and we're in Zoom and we're, of course, recording for our podcast. But for some reason, of course, impermanence, Facebook hasn't been working for the live stream on Sundays, so I'm not able to live stream to Facebook. But all those people should potentially be moving over to YouTube and or coming into Zoom so that you guys can be able to see the class and learn that way.
So the first thing to understand as it relates to learning the five precepts is that what the Buddha is doing is he's helping you to understand the natural law of gamma. Essentially, throughout all of his teachings, no matter what you're learning, whether it's the precepts or something else, he's helping you to understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. It's your life, your decisions, and your results. And the more wisdom that you have on this natural law, you'll be able to make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. And when we're lacking wisdom of this natural law, we make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. And this is where one might struggle or have difficulties in the world because of our lack of wisdom. And we did the same thing that we awoke to the wisdom of this natural law of gravity. When we were growing up, we needed to gradually learn, gradually practice, and gradually see the results of being able to make wiser decisions about the natural law of gravity. Well, the same thing is happening on this path to enlightenment that you're awakening to the wisdom of this natural law of gamma. What you're also doing, what the Buddha is guiding you to do as part of the five precepts is eliminate the 10 fetters. There's certain fetters or pollutions or taints that are in the mind that are hindering one from being able to experience the peace and joy of the enlightened mind. So each one of these precepts, while he's sharing with you the wisdom of the natural law of gamma, it's also working to help eliminate certain pollutions of the mind, like craving, desire, attachment, or ill will and things like this. So I can help you to understand that as we go in today's class, as I explain each individual precept and how to apply it in your life today, just remember that whenever we're talking about moral conduct, whether it's as part of the Eightfold Path or it's part of the Five Precepts, the Buddha is guiding you to understand this natural law of gamma. They're not rules. They're not commandments. He's not using guilt, shame, or fear in order to motivate people to learn and practice these teachings. He's exposing you to the wisdom of this natural law so that now with that wisdom, you can make wiser decisions and experience more wholesome and better outcomes in your life, both in your personal and professional relationships. Talking about the five precepts in general, the five precepts in general are guidance that significantly reduces your unwholesome gamma production. Because whenever you're making decisions with the five precepts in mind, you're going to be making wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. So it's assisting you to purify the mind and purify your life by gaining this wisdom and making wiser decisions that will significantly reduce your unwholesome gamma. The five precepts won't eliminate your unwholesome gamma. That's what the Eightfold Path is doing. When you learn and practice the Eightfold Path in its entirety, that is what completely eliminates all unwholesome gamma production through producing only wholesome gamma. So if you're making wise decisions based on the Eightfold Path, that's going to produce only wholesome results for you. But because we've all made decisions in the past, there are certain decisions that we've made in the past that have kind of cluttered up our life. It's kind of like a garden hose that we've been putting this mud into this garden hose throughout our life. And now, even if you could snap your fingers and instantly implement all the teachings of the Buddha, which you can't, but if you could, 
you would still have some mud coming out of this garden hose. It's not going to be completely pure because of the decisions we made in the past to put mud into this garden hose. But what you're doing with the five precepts and the eightfold path is you're hooking up this garden hose to a faucet and you're turning on the faucet. And as you turn on this clean water, it's going to start moving this mud out of the garden hose. If you just came to a class, you know, maybe once a month or once every two months or something like that, you've got a little drip going into this hose. But if you're coming regularly to attend the classes on Sundays and maybe when you can't attend, you're listening to the replays, you're reading the books, you're meditating, you're seeking guidance from your teacher and you're doing all these different things, you've opened up that faucet quite a bit and you've got nice pure water starting to kind of come into this garden hose in your life. But even still with putting in these wholesome decisions and putting in this clean water, the garden hose is gonna spit mud for a while because of the unwholesome decisions that we've made in the past. But as we put more and more water into this garden hose, this clean water starts to flush out the mud and we get some mud and then we get a little bit of clean water. We get mud and then we get a little bit of clean water. And as we keep putting clean water into this garden hose, eventually we get pure water coming out the other end. So what the five precepts are helping you to do is see some of that clean water to put into the garden hose so that as you're making these wise decisions, you're not causing harm to other beings, so therefore harm won't come back to you. And this will help you to be able to purify the mind and purify your life. It's the Eightfold Path that is completely eliminating all unwholesome karma, but the five precepts are plugging into the Eightfold Path to be able to help you understand more detail about the moral conduct. So when I was teaching two weeks ago about right speech and right action, there were certain teachings there that were going into a lot of detail. And I mentioned, you know, these are going to be clarified and you're going to get deeper understanding in the five precepts. And that's what today is all about. And of course, the Eightfold Path has a lot more detail than just the five precepts, but you would need to understand the five precepts and plug this in to the Eightfold Path in order to gain this wisdom and make wiser decisions that lead to improved results. So these are detailed teachings that integrate into the Eightfold Path based on this harmlessness. And in reality, as you start seeing the five precepts and how the Buddha taught them, what you might come to understand is that you've been essentially learning these types of teachings throughout your life, probably from your primary caregivers, your parents or your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, people like this as you've been growing up, they've been teaching you certain things around these five precepts. But depending on how they introduced them to you, depending on how they talked about them, they might not have talked about them as the five precepts. They might have just generally talked to you about killing or stealing or sexual misconduct or lying or intoxicants. But what you're going to see today is that with the illuminating language of a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and then having a teacher walk you through, you're going to be able to get a level of detail that you might not have gotten when you were learning with your primary caregivers. But even those things that your primary caregivers were teaching you, that was helping you along the path to be able to help you to understand things that you're going to also be learning as part of the five precepts. So the first one to understand is the very first one that is starting in this way. And I'll read it to you so that you can hear the words of the Buddha. And you can see it on the screen too if you're watching the live stream or you're in Zoom or otherwise digesting this through video. If you're listening on the podcast, then I'll be reading this for you so that you can understand it. 
The first precept, the Buddha says, abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life without stick or sword, diligent, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So some people, as I mentioned, use the rudimentary description of no killing. Well, when you use that rudimentary translation of no killing, it sounds like it's black and white. But this precept and none of the other precepts are black and white. There's a significant gray area that a teacher is going to help you to navigate and understand so that you can then make wise decisions fully understanding these teachings in the natural law of gamma. So whenever you're studying with the words of the Buddha, you would like to investigate them. As I've shared with you, you never believe the teachings. You learn, reflect, and practice. So when you see a teaching like this in the words of the Buddha, you can understand that it's based on living beings. He's talking about living compassionately for living beings. So the first thing you might ask yourself, well, what is a living being? Because you need to know what a living being is in order to know how to live compassionately towards that living being. Well, a very basic way to think about a living being is a being that is developed from an egg, a sperm, and it has a consciousness. This is a very simple way to think about a living being. Plants and bacteria, things like this, aren't a living being the way that we've describe a living being. We sometimes think about these things and discuss them as being alive, but they're not a living being in the way that the Buddha described a living being. As you move forward on the path to enlightenment, you learn what's called the five aggregates. This is where the Buddha describes what a living being truly is. These five aggregates or five collections or five elements are the five things that determine a living being as a living being. I'll share them with you now and just understand that they're something you will learn later, like when you move into the Pali Canon and English study group. That's where we usually explore this in a lot more detail. What the five aggregates are is the Buddha shares that all living beings will have these five elements or these five collections or these five aggregates. It's form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. What form is, is a living being is going to have physical form, like a human being has physical form. There's skin, there's bone, there's tissue, a dog, a cat, a bird, a ant, a monkey, a whale. These all have physical form. Even a tree has physical form, but as you'll see, a tree doesn't meet all the criteria of the five aggregates. The next thing is that a living being is going to have feelings. This is the feelings in the mind, that discontentedness that we described. A enlightened being isn't going to have discontentedness, but they're going to have certain mental qualities. An unenlightened being is going to experience those conditioned feelings. Then there's going to be perceptions in the mind of a living being. What a perception is, is this is the way that a being has certain opinions and views of the world. The way a being looks out at the world. This is what's called a perception. What a volitional formation is, which is the fourth one, that is choices and decisions. A living being is going to be able to make choices and decisions about their life and things that they're doing in life. And then there's the consciousness or the mind. These are the five aggregates. Form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and then a consciousness. So here you can see things like a human being, animals, and things like this. These are all living beings. You can see in the same scenario with these five aggregates that something like a tree 
while we respect trees and we're not interested in harming the forest, they're not a living being in the way that the Buddha is describing them. That's why harvesting a tree doesn't lead to unwholesome karma. We're going to need to pick fruits and vegetables and plants and things like this. These aren't living beings, but we should, of course, respect them and ensure that we have them around because we need them as human beings. A tree has physical form, for example, but it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have perceptions. It doesn't look at the world and have certain opinions and views about the world. It doesn't have volitional formations or choices and decisions. A tree can't decide to uproot itself, walk down the street, and then plant itself again. And this is because it doesn't have the fifth aggregate, which is a consciousness or a mind. So here you can see that plants and bacteria or viruses and things like this, they're not a living being because they don't have all five aggregates that the Buddha taught. But for now, you can think about a living being in this simple way that I've shared, which is an egg, sperm, and consciousness. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here, is living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. Okay, so now that we understand that this is what a living being is and the teaching that he's sharing is to live compassionate for all living beings, you will need to ask yourself, understanding this compassion towards all living beings, which compassion is the concern for their misfortune, you might decide for yourself whether or not you would participate in a euthanasia of a human or animal or the termination of a pregnancy, or suicide, or assisted suicide, or capital punishment, or war, or some government-sponsored killing, or murder. These are all intentional killings. Now, some of the things that I just mentioned here, these are things that we do in the world. And some people look at some of these things that I just shared as a political conversation, like the termination of a pregnancy. Right now, this is something that's discussed in political environments. And nothing that I teach is about politics. It's not about politics whatsoever. And it's not about black and white, about, you know, that abortion should be legal or abortion should be illegal or anything like that. What I'm sharing is this natural law of gamma, which is a much higher law than the human laws that we create. And you can't apply these things in black and white. So let's use this one about termination of pregnancy to kind of dissect it and reflect on it and see how living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings can be understood. If a woman came to me, and maybe even if they have their partner, and they asked me, should I get an abortion? I wouldn't say yes or no, because it's not my place to make a decision for another person about whether they should or shouldn't get an abortion. And I take this approach with everything. Even if somebody comes to me and asks whether they should ordain as a monk or whether they should be a household practitioner or whether they should take this job or that job or whether they should move to this city or that city, I never make decisions for a student. I'm just going to share the guidance of the natural law of gamma and then let somebody make their own decisions because only that individual knows what's best for them. All I am is an advisor and providing guidance. So if a woman came to me and asked if they should get an abortion, I wouldn't say yes or no. I would just say, if you get an abortion, here's how that's going to affect you based on the natural law of gamma. And if you don't get an abortion, here's how that's going to affect you based on the natural law of gamma. And then there are certain situations where a woman might be carrying a baby that it's well known from medical technology that this baby is not going to go to full term. 
and by maintaining the baby in the womb of the woman, it's putting the woman's health at risk and she could potentially die. So in this situation, if you're living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, then you know that by allowing that pregnancy to continue, that it's risking the health of the woman and to live compassionately, the proper decision may be, depending on the doctors and the family and everybody who's involved, it may be to terminate the pregnancy and that would be living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. So the Buddha didn't teach to preserve all life at all costs. That's oftentimes how people interpret these things. The unenlightened mind likes to tend to see things as black and white because it's a lot easier for the unenlightened mind to look at things as black and white. You know, tell me if I can do this and I can't do this. But that's not the way that a conscious being functions. If you're moving to this higher consciousness as an enlightened being, you need to be thoughtful and you need to think through with your higher consciousness about all your decisions and the impacts of those decisions. So the Buddha is not giving you a decision tree of what you should do or you shouldn't do. Instead, he's helping you to see this natural law of gamma more and more closely through his teachings. And then you need to be able to navigate that and then seek guidance as you need. Because in some situations, a woman might choose that an abortion is the right thing for her in that situation. In another situation, she may not. And there are certain effects that we experience because of that. Let me give you another example of this, like war. Now, with war, a country can tell the citizens of their country that we would like you to go to this other country and we would like you to battle with them and we would like you to kill the people in that country because we disagree with something that they're doing and we want you to kill them, right? This is something that a government can do. They will say, if you kill people in our country, we'd prosecute you for murder. But if you go to that country and kill those people, we're not going to process you and put you forward for murder. Well, this is human law. This is what humans choose to do based on the decisions of human law. But the natural law of gamma, you can escape the natural law of gamma. If somebody chooses to go to war while their government has maybe given them authorization to do that and they won't be prosecuted for murder as a human law, they are still going to be affected by this natural law of gamma regardless of what their government says because the natural law of gamma doesn't function based on humans making a certain decision or not. Because if an individual goes off to war, even though their government has agreed that they can go do that and they can murder people in that other country, they have a very high likelihood of being killed themselves. They have a very high likelihood of being injured or getting an amputation or something like this. They have a high likelihood of coming back from war with certain mental challenges as a result of being in the war. They have the potential of committing suicide, potentially, based on the anguish and difficulties that they're struggling with inside the mind. This is all the natural law of gamma based on the decision to go off and kill other beings. This is an intentional killing. So what the human laws are versus what the natural law of gamma is, is two different things sometimes. And we are affected by the natural law of gamma. That's what we're always experiencing. So by gaining the wisdom of this natural law, we need to make individual decisions that are wise for us about whether we would participate in any number of these things. And as I mentioned, they're not black and white in all cases. There's a large gray area that needs to be navigated and be able to see very closely. One of those 
things to look at is something called a DNR or a do not resuscitate. There are some countries where you can go to a legal representative or a lawyer or something like this, and you can sign a document that says that if you die, do not use medical intervention to resuscitate you. If you're choosing to do this, this is not an intentional killing. You haven't intentionally killed anybody. Instead, what you're doing is you're choosing to not be brought back to life because you're comfortable with death and you're not interested in using medical technology to bring yourself back to life. So you could execute a DNR and still be practicing this precept as the Buddha sharing it is living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. Let's look at defense and protection. If somebody broke into your house at 2 a.m. in the morning, they're not bringing you chocolate and flowers. They're choosing to break into your house and they're probably meaning to do harm is most likely what is going on. So as you're aware of this, you have some decisions to make. What I would typically advise a student to do is if they can get out and get their family out to just get out, go somewhere else, call the police, avoid the whole situation, let the police handle it. They're the ones who are equipped to do that kind of thing. But there are some situations where someone might break into your home, you and your family are backed up into a corner, and if you need to harm that other being in order to protect yourself and your family, this is living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. In order to have compassion or this concern for the misfortune of beings, you need to have that for yourself and your family as well as other beings as well. But this being who chose to break into your house, again, they're not bringing you chocolate and flowers. If they get harmed in this situation, this is a result of their decisions, not a result of your decisions. It's a result of their decisions that they chose to break into your house. And what I would advise is for somebody to do the least amount of harm as possible. So if they don't have any weapons or anything like that, and you can just tackle them and tie them up and wait for the police to come or something like that, then that's very wise. But in some situations, they might have a knife or a gun or a baseball bat or something like this, and you might need to take more extreme measures in order to protect yourself. And that would be living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, because you're trying to do the least amount of harm as possible while still maintaining your compassion for yourself and the other beings in the home. Another example might be if you had a termite infestation or something like this. In this situation, if there's termites coming into the home and eating up the home, if you did nothing, this wouldn't be having compassion for all living beings because these termites are going to completely destroy your home and now you and other people in your home aren't going to have a place to live. So the Buddha didn't say preserve all life at all costs. He's saying living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. And what that would mean for me if I had a termite infestation, which we actually had at one point here, there were some termites at our house, that would involve researching on the internet to see if there's any ways to eradicate these termites without killing them and seeing if there's something like that available. But what you might come back to understand is that really the only way to eradicate termites is to hire somebody to come exterminate them. And that's what my wife ended up doing. She called a company and they drilled holes around our house and they put food that had certain poisons in there and then they ate that poison and then it went back to the nest and then the nest slowly but surely got disintegrated. But in this situation, 
we were living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings because we looked to see if there was options to eradicate them without killing them, but there weren't. So in order to live compassionately for the welfare of the beings that are living here, there needed to be steps taken to be able to eradicate these beings. And this is those beings' gamma, that they were choosing to cause harm. So harm came to them. And this is one of the problems about being reborn into the animal realm is they lack certain decision-making ability. They don't have a well-cultivated consciousness. And oftentimes animals' existence is based on causing harm. So like a snake has to kill in order to eat or a lion has to kill in order to eat. Same thing, the termites have to eat wood and sometimes because of their lack of insight and wisdom, they're gonna eat the wood of a person's house rather than a tree that's out in the forest. And when this occurs, then human beings need to take action because the Buddha is not teaching to preserve all life at all costs. He's teaching to live compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. The next thing you might choose to look at in terms of practicing this precept is about your food consumption and whether you decide to consume animal products or whether you choose to move to a vegan lifestyle or something like that. If you are looking at research, what you'll find is that the meat that we eat has various substances in it that is affecting the health of our body. And it affects the health that when we eat it, it causes inflammation, it causes sickness, it causes various diseases. But there's also substances like antidepressants, cocaines, hormones, drugs, and toxins that are in that flesh that when we eat it, it affects our body and it affects our mind. There's been people who have researched and taken fish out of very clean running streams in places like America, and they've tested the flesh of the wild salmon, and they found cocaine, antidepressants, and other substances in these fish. There was over 90 different substances that they found, and this was supposed to be a very clean river. But because human beings have been flushing certain prescription medications and illicit drugs and things like this into the water table, now our clean water streams, while they might look clean to the eye, they've actually got substances in them that are now being absorbed in the animal's flesh, like fish, or if a cow is drinking the groundwater, this is all going into their flesh. And then when a human being is eating that, they're ending up experiencing the results of that decision that the cocaine and antidepressants and other hormones and things like this are in the flesh of the animal and we're ingesting that and it's affecting our body and our mind. You can also look at the research where scientists and anthropologists and researchers have shown that human beings at one time were plant-based eaters. And remember, I don't believe anything that I am exposed to. I'm always learning, reflecting, and practicing. So when I learned this, that humans are plant-based eaters, I started looking around for independently verifiable evidence that at the beginning of time, human beings were plant-based eaters. And I looked at my teeth, and I know that horses and cows and animals who eat grains and grasses, they have very flat teeth. And I noticed that human beings also have very flat teeth. And then I compared that to animals who eat meat, like predators and carnivores. They have very sharp teeth because they're grabbing, ripping, and tearing in order to eat meat. And what scientists and researchers share with us is that human beings at the very beginning, we were plant-based eaters. We lived in the forest, but our population became so large that we ran out of 
plants in the forest to be able to eat. So we started scavenging in order to get meat because we saw things like lions and tigers killing and eating meat. And we would get together and we would run away the lions and the tigers and we would take over their kill and we started eating the meat that they had killed. But then our population got so big that the scavenging wasn't enough anymore. So we had to learn how to do organized hunting. And as we learned organized hunting, then we started eating animals. And that's how humans started to eat animals. And now we're at the point where we mass produce animals and we use drugs and hormones and things like that in order to grow them faster and faster in order to produce more and more profit. And now we're ingesting that if you're eating meat and it affects the health of the body and the mind. So you might choose to look at this and decide to clean up your food intake and how you make decisions about leather goods and other byproducts that are used in order to sustain your life. Because you can get to a point where you're not sustaining your life by relying on animal products. And if you choose to do this, I would suggest to do it gradually, where you gradually move away from animal products. Because the mind does not like impermanence. It doesn't like change. And if you just try to snap your fingers and rapidly move from eating meat to not eating meat, the body and the mind can have challenges with that. So it's best to do this gradually over multiple months because you would need to find new restaurants, you would need to find new recipes perhaps, you need to find new suppliers to find the products that you need and so forth and so on. So that's gonna take some time. If you would like information on how to do that, you can look all over the internet and find those different things. Or if you have questions for me about how I did this, I can help you with that. Because there's things like vitamin supplements that you might decide to also take because B12 is a vitamin that only exists in a couple of very rare plants. And most people aren't eating these plants. They're like some algaes and seaweeds and things like that. So some people may need to take a supplement like B12. Not everybody will need to do that, but some people may. And that's something that you should probably consider as you might choose to move from animal products that you might consume over to a plant-based food supply. So I'm gonna pause here and see what questions you guys have on this particular precept. You can put your questions into YouTube or in Zoom in the comment section and I'll be able to see that and answer any questions that you have. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly and I'll be pleased to help you with that. All right, I'm not seeing any questions in YouTube or Zoom. So you guys must be understanding things to a certain degree with this. So I'm gonna move on to the next precept and discuss the second precept that the Buddha shared. This one, again, I'll read to you and then we'll talk about it and I'll open up to any questions that you guys have. What he shares here is abandoning the taking of what is not given, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. So oftentimes this is translated as no stealing. And again, it sounds like it's black and white and you don't get all this other information that the Buddha is sharing with you as part of this precept. He's giving you a lot more than just no stealing. Well, of course, it's unwise to steal. If the mind is having craving, desire, attachment, one might choose to steal and take things from others. And that is causing harm to other people, so harm is gonna to come to us. So if we chose to steal somebody's car, for example, they had to work really hard in order to 
get that car and they use it to go to work, maybe take their children to school, maybe go shopping and buy supplies and bring it back to their home in order to provide the basic necessities that they need. So if we stole anything at all, not just a car, but anything at all, it's going to cause harm to others. So therefore harm is going to come to us. So it's very unwise to steal at all because it's going to create harm and harm is going to come to us. But there's a lot more here that the Buddha is sharing as part of this precept that you would like to understand and practice so that you can essentially live purely with this pure decisions and these wise decisions. You might consider that assuming that something can be taken or used would be unwise. If you were, for example, in a college class and you were handing in a paper to a professor in when you were handing in your paper, the professor was outside and you noticed there's a stapler on their desk and you picked up their stapler to staple the paper. And right as you were doing that, they walked in the room and they saw you using their stapler. They could get very angry if they're attached to their stapler. They could get frustrated or irritated or annoyed. And now because of wrong view, them thinking that you are causing their discontent feelings, they might become bitter or harsh or aggressive towards you. Or they might even give you a bad grade because of their feelings and they're taking that out through their grading. So it would be unwise to just take something or assume that something can be taken. So you should always ask permission when things aren't yours. You shouldn't just assume that you can take things. Instead, ask people that these things are either theirs, that they belong to them, or they're within their possessions. You would like to ask people before you use something and never assume that something can be used or taken. Accepting what is given. What this is related to is that when you're practicing these teachings, you might tend to be more and more around people who are practicing generosity. Generosity is something that a lot of people practice without even realizing that it's really helpful for the mind and this helps to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. You might be at work or at home or with family or friends and people might practice generosity with you. They might offer to buy you lunch. They might give you a gift. They might do any number of things. And what the Buddha teaches is to accept what is given. By accepting what is given, you're leaving the channel open so that that person can practice generosity and be able to enhance their mind. If somebody was to offer you something and you rejected it and you said, no, 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 I don't want that. This person, again, they could have certain cravings that they really want to offer this to you. And if you say no and you reject it, they're going to potentially get the painful feelings with having wrong view they don't realize they're causing those feelings themselves. They might attribute those painful feelings to you and now they might go away and you might not be able to have a relationship with this person because they're feeling like you're rejecting their offering of some generosity. Or another side of that is, is that if you rejected people's generosity regularly, you'll get to the point where people won't offer you things anymore. They won't be generous to you because each time they try to be generous, you reject what they're offering you. So people will just shut down and they will stop offering you things and being generous with you because they keep being rejected. So here you should accept what is given. Even if grandma at Christmas time gives you that sweater and you look at that sweater and you know that you will absolutely never wear that sweater ever in your life, the Buddha teaches that you should still accept what is given.
Now, what we tend to do in Western culture when grandma gives us that sweater is we will tend to put it into the closet and it'll sit there for 20, 30 years where they're away. And we think that that's kind of honoring our grandmother or we will reject it. And in both of these situations, it would be unwise. Instead, what we can do is we can offer that sweater to somebody else. So grandma, she practiced generosity by giving us the sweater. We're now practicing generosity to give it to somebody else. In this situation, we are what in Western culture we call re-gifting. And we think that, oh, this is really bad if we re-gift something. But what would be better? Would it be better for the sweater to stay in the closet and wither away and nobody ever get to use it and all those resources go to waste? Or would it be wiser to share it with somebody else and allow somebody else to choose whether or not they would like to use it? Because this sweater might go through three, four, five, ten hands of people practicing generosity. And eventually, it will get in the hands of somebody that thinks, wow, that is the absolute most beautiful sweater I have ever seen. And I'm going to wear it every single day of my life, right? They might really enjoy this sweater. But in the meantime, these 10 people had all this benefit of generosity, of giving and sharing and eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and holding on and clinging to things. So we haven't caused any harm by choosing to move a gift on to somebody else. Here, living in Thailand, it's common that people come around with big bunches of bananas that they've been growing in their yard. They have too many to eat and they give them out to other villagers or other vegetables or fruits or things like that. And even when they give that to us, it might be too much for us to eat and it would just sit there and wither away and it would not be useful. So we find other people to give it to and we share. And this helps to ensure that we can share things around and people have food and we can give and we can share our time, effort, our energy and resources with other people and not cling and crave and hold on to things. But again, there's a gray area here, right? Accepting what is given. If somebody gave you cocaine or crystal methamphetamine, you're not going to accept what is given, right? This would be unwise to accept cocaine or crystal meth or something like this. So a being who is moving to this higher consciousness needs to consciously make decisions about what they're doing and realizing what they are doing. That yes, if people are just offering you standard gifts, it's very wise to accept those gifts. And then if you're not going to keep them, move them on. But also in certain situations, if you know somebody wants something from you and they're only offering you this gift because they want something from you, it might be unwise for you to accept that gift. You might need to ask that person, oh, this is very kind of you to buy me this. What do you want in return? And if they say, oh, I want you to sign this contract in order to purchase what I'm selling you you might decide to decline the gift, right? Or if they say, no, I don't want anything from you at all. I just would like to buy you lunch or I would like to just buy you this thing. Then in that situation, you're accepting what is given perhaps because you realize that they don't have any strings attached to their generosity. So this is where as a conscious being, you might need to ask questions. You need to look at what's being offered to you and then make a choice about what is right in that situation. Each situation is going to be different. There's going to be different variables. There's going to be different gifts, different people, different situations. So you're going to need to be conscious to ask questions. And this is where you learn, you reflect, and you practice. And you may make mistakes at certain times, and that's fine because you learn through those mistakes. And as you learn, you gain more and more wisdom. And then the last thing here to talk about is what the Buddha is describing as 
awaiting what is given. In a situation where you're not awaiting what is given, the opposite of that would be putting your expectations on people and asking them to buy you things. So if you have a partner and they're going on a business trip and you are like, oh, buy me this and buy me this and bring me this and bring me that, this is putting your expectations and your obligations on that person. And now they might be burdened with that throughout their trip and they find it a struggle to get all these things that you've asked them for. And this could put tension and stress in your relationship. Whereas if you just await what is given, where they're going on a business trip, if they choose to get you a gift, wonderful, you accept what is given. If they choose not to give you a gift, then that's fine too. If you don't have a craving or desire for a gift, then when they go away and they come back and they have nothing, then that's fine too. That's not an indication of anything. They might've just been active in their work or they didn't have the money to get something or they didn't have the time to do it. We shouldn't have obligations where we're expecting things from people and asking them to give us things. This is one of the reasons why you won't hear me as a teacher or other people who are practicing these teachings and sharing these teachings. I won't ever ask you to donate money to me or give me anything because I don't want anything from you. Instead, I just give and give and give and give and give and help the students to learn. And I just await what is given. If a student chooses to support me and support the work that I'm doing to be able to help me to continue to offer these teachings to you, then wonderful, a student chooses to do that. But I don't have an expectation of that. I'm just awaiting what is given. I'm just practicing generosity of giving my time, effort, energy, and resources to help others. And then based on the natural law of gamma, if those people choose to then make an offering to help me and assist me to continue to offer these teachings, then I would accept what is given. And that would be very kind. And there are certain students who do that. And that's the only reason why I'm able to continue to offer these teachings. But you'll never find you know, a plate being passed around in a Buddhist temple, at least any of the ones that I've been to where people are expecting or asking for money because we just await what is given. We just give without expectation of anything in return. And that's what pure generosity is. And we're going to be talking more about generosity when we get to chapter 10, which is a few weeks from now. But I just connect that for you to help you understand why a Buddhist teacher and why a temple never ask their students or ask the people for any particular thing. We just give and give and give. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about this particular precept, understanding that it's helping you to understand the wisdom of the natural law of gamma and eliminate craving, where the first precept is about eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will. Because in order to kill a living being, there needs to be a certain amount of anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind. So it's protecting you from harmful decisions so harmful results don't come to you, but it's also helping you to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will. And then same thing here, this particular precept is helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but it's also helping to ensure you're not causing harm to others and harm doesn't come to you. So you can put those questions into YouTube or into Zoom. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions coming in here. So I'll just move on to the next precept, which is the third one. This third precept oftentimes is translated as no sexual misconduct. And the first question someone might ask is, well, what is sexual misconduct? Well, the Buddha didn't say no sexual misconduct. Again, because this sounds like a rule, sounds like a commandment. It sounds like it's black and white. And 
who knows what sexual misconduct is? Well, the Buddha knows because what he taught is based on his enlightenment and this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha is going to have the wisdom that helps you to ensure that if you're going to have sex, to do it in a, a safe way that ensures that you're not causing harm to others. So therefore, harm doesn't come to you. So here's what he says in the third precept. He says, abandoning unchastity, abandoning sexual relations with women, men who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister or relatives who are protected by teachings, who have a husband, wife or partner whose violation entails a penalty or even with one who has been garlanded by a man, woman or partner as a sign of engagement. Okay, so I'm going to break this down and help you guys see what the Buddha is teaching here. Here, he's teaching to not have sex with minors. That's where he says those who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister or relatives. Because if you had sex with an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or any being that is a minor, they're being guided by their parents. And if you were to have that intimate contact, it's very impactful to an individual to have intimate contact. And at that age, the person who's a minor, it would impact them in a negative way and it would impact their family's ability to teach and to guide this person. So most laws in the world on the human level are in agreement with this and they have laws against these kind of things. But there's some places in the world that don't have laws about this, that it is legal to have sex with a nine-year-old child or a 10-year-old child. But in that situation, if you know the natural law of gamma, which is a much higher law, then you can practice and make decisions in a way that keeps you and others around you protected. The Buddha also talks about sex without consent. This is where he talks about whose violation entails a penalty. Because if you were to have sex without consent, then you would essentially be raping this person, stealing and taking what does not belong to you. It's even affecting the second precept, right? So if you have this penalty through violating a person by forcibly having sex with them without consent, this is going to cause harm to them. So therefore harm comes to you. Sex with multiple partners. This is where the Buddha is talking about abandoning unchastity. This sex with multiple partners would be having sex and being in sexual relationships with multiple people at the same time. If you have sex with just one person at a time, this is what's going to protect you. In situations where you may not have done that, where you've had sex with multiple people, there's certain things that can come back to you as a way of harm. This can be sexually transmitted diseases, People have been beat up or injured based on having sex with multiple people and people finding out and not being in agreement with that. People have even been murdered over this kind of thing. So by you ensuring that you only have one partner at a time, you ensure that you are not going to get sexually transmitted diseases most likely and you're not going to get injured or murdered by some other person who's maybe in a relationship with that person. So it's best to only have one partner at a time. Sex while living in a home with relatives is something that some cultures do. Here in Thailand, if you meet a partner, you might talk to your family and ask them if you can move into the family home with your partner and your family will either give consent for that or not. And if this is 
happening and the family has consented to this, this is an acceptance of the relationship. This is where the parents or the grandparents or the other relatives are accepting this partner to move in and they know that you having sex is part of the agreement or part of the relationship, so to speak. So in this case, you wouldn't be breaking this precept or causing any harm because you've sorted out with your relatives before you've moved in with your partner that they're accepting of this relationship. If there's sex with someone who has previously decided to remain celibate, this would cause harm. This is where the Buddha is talking about who are protected by their teachings. There are certain people who have decided to practice the precept of not having sex with others. And this isn't something that you need to do right now, but at some point you might choose to move away from sex. And if you do, then you're on this path to enlightenment and you're bringing your practice to a point where you might decide that you would like to give up sexual activity. You can actually get to the first or second stage of enlightenment and still maintain sexual relationships. But in terms of doing the work to get to enlightenment, ultimately by somebody choosing to get to enlightenment, they would end up deciding to let go of sexual contact. It doesn't mean you have to do that today or tomorrow or the next day, but at some point in your journey in this life, you will probably choose to let go of sexual contact. It might be when you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. It's hard to say. Everybody's different. It's your practice. It's your journey. You can actually do all the other work on the path to enlightenment and still get into that first or second stage of enlightenment, and your life will be very, very peaceful. You will have significantly reduced your discontentedness in the mind, but by still having sex, you're going to still experience discontentedness sometimes because there's going to be situations where you want sex and you can't get it and the mind's going to be discontent in that situation. So in order to move to enlightenment where the mind experiences no discontentedness whatsoever, you would need to let go of sexual contact. But when or if you decide to do that is your choice. So it's not something you need to run out and do today, but gradually over time you might make these choices and that's your choice to make when or if you ever do that. But for somebody who has decided to remain celibate, if you were to try to lure them away from that and have sex, it's hurting them because they're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. And it's hurting the rest of the community because having an enlightened being in the community is very beneficial for all the people in the community. So it would be wise to ensure that if you're having sex with somebody, they're not choosing to remain celibate. Here in Thailand, ordained practitioners have chosen to remain celibate, so they're wearing robes. Oftentimes people will wear all white in order to help others to know that they're choosing to be celibate and to not have sex with them. This isn't the reason why I chose to wear white. I have chosen to no longer have sex and I haven't had sex for quite a while, but that's not why I chose to wear white. But some people do choose to wear white in order to help others to understand that they're not having sex any longer. And this helps the community to navigate that and understand that. So as you're choosing to have sex, be sure it's somebody who's sexually active and interested in doing that and they're not choosing to remain celibate. If you have sex with people who are already in committed relationships, so even though you might be single, but somebody else is in a committed relationship, in this situation, you're causing harm. You're taking that person away 
from their relationship. And now this is where, again, you can get sexually transmitted diseases. You can get in fights and arguments and injured. You can even get murdered. There's been plenty of people that have been murdered over this kind of thing. And that's not something that you're interested in doing. So by making the decision to only have sex with someone who is single and ensuring that to be the case, then you're protecting your mind and protecting your life that you're not going to encounter that. Sex outside of any relationship you're committed to. So if you have a relationship with a partner and you go outside the relationship and have sex with somebody, again, you're exposed to sexually transmitted diseases, injury, and even potential murder in some situations. If you were to have sex with someone who is human trafficked, this person is having sex with multiple people, they're being forced into this, they're a sex worker, and you having sex with that person, you're supporting this almost slave environment. And again, you can get sexually transmitted diseases if you went into some type of brothel or some kind of situation where you're having paid sexual services. You can get injured and get in fights and arguments. You can get drugged. You can get murdered. These are all things that occur for people who participate in those types of activities. There are some other things to talk about too as it relates to this particular precept is we just talked a bit about paid sexual services. So that's something to keep in mind that if you were having paid sexual services, you're having sex with somebody who's having sex with multiple people. And this would be unwise because of the reasons I mentioned. STDs, you can get injured in, in fights, you can get drugged, you can get murdered, uh, you can get robbed in these situations. So those things can all happen from the people who are choosing to sell you this sex because if they rob you and steal your money, you're most likely not going to go to the police and report them because you're also doing something wrong that you could get arrested for. So oftentimes people who have paid sexual services are victims for other crimes as well because they're choosing to have paid sexual services. It's important to understand same gender relationships because as you see here, when the Buddha is describing sexual misconduct, he never mentions same gender relationships. And that's because there is no harm in a same gender relationship. If a man and a woman are choosing to have sex with each other and they're in a loyal, loving, consenting relationship, they're not causing harm to anybody. They're in a loyal, loving, consenting relationship. And the same thing for two men or two women, if they're choosing to have sex with each other, they're in a loyal, loving, consenting relationship and they haven't chose to cause harm to anybody. So no harm is gonna to come to them as a result. And if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you understand why the Buddha didn't include same gender relationships in the sexual misconduct, not only because of the natural law of gamma, because they're not causing harm, so therefore harm won't come to them, but instead, the other aspect of this is the universal truth of impermanence, that it is not possible for every person who's born into a body that has male sexual organs to be interested to have sex with a female. And it's not possible for every being who's born into a body with female sexual organs to be interested in having sex with a male. If that existed, that would be permanence. 
and we understand the universal truth of impermanence. So we can know right away why the Buddha didn't include this because of the natural law of gamma, but also because of the universal truth of impermanence. That it's just not possible for every man or every woman to be interested in having sex with the opposite gender because that would be permanence. So you can see here that the Buddha was extremely wise because 2,500 years ago, he understood this. He understood about same gender relationships. He understood even about transgender individuals, which we're going to talk about next. Because in his teachings, he describes men who don't identify with masculine qualities and females who don't identify with feminine qualities. He just makes the observation and he shares it with his students that this exists. But he doesn't have any teachings on this because there's nothing wrong. It's completely normal if you understand the universal truth of impermanence and you understand the cycle of rebirth. So he didn't teach that it's unwise to have sex with somebody of the same gender because he understood that if there's two loyal, loving, consenting adults having sex, they're not actually causing harm to anyone. The challenge is, is that nowadays there's beings in the world who they are craving permanence. They want every man to have sex with a woman and they want every woman to have sex with a man. And they're causing themselves discontentedness and their anger and their hatred and their ill will is arising as a result of their cravings. But if you prefer same gender relationships or you know people that do, they're not doing anything wrong. They're completely normal. There's no harm whatsoever. And the Buddha understood this 2,500 years ago. There's people today that don't understand this. And, you know, there's people that are getting better with that. And more and more the society in the world is starting to understand that. But the Buddha understood this 2,500 years ago. 50 years ago, if somebody would have stood up and shared this teaching that I'm sharing right now, it would probably be very hard for a lot of people to digest because of the lack of wisdom in humanity and in the mind of human beings. But the Buddha understood this 2,500 years ago. That's how wise he truly is or was. And that's why all of his teachings are from this place of wisdom and this fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. So let's talk about transgender individuals as well, because with this same understanding that I just shared, being a transgender individual is completely normal. This person isn't ill. They're not sick. They haven't done anything wrong. If you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you understand that it's not possible for every being who has male sexual organs that their mind identifies as a male. If every single person who had male sexual organs in their mind identified as male, this would be permanence. And the universal truth of impermanence wouldn't be a universal truth. And the same thing for females, that every female who has female sexual organs, their mind isn't going to identify as being a female. This is the universal truth of impermanence. But also, if you understand the cycle of rebirth, that every single one of us have been beings in the past. So when I was a lizard, maybe I was a female, or when I was a snake, I was a female, or you know, other genders of male and female in different existences. So if somebody is born into a body in the human realm that has male sexual organs and their mind identifies as a female, well, this is the universal truth of impermanence. And this is also potential from the cycle of rebirth that this being has been a female in previous existences. And just because they're in this existence doesn't mean that their mind identifies with being a male. 
or identifies as being a female. Just because the body has the certain sexual organs, the mind can identify as something completely different. The body and the mind are two different things, and they're not going to always match because of the universal truth of impermanence and because of the cycle of rebirth. So if you or anybody around you is a transgender individual, they haven't done anything wrong, it's completely normal, and once again, other people's minds are craving for every male that has male sexual organs to identify with being a male, and every female that has female sexual organs to identify as being a female. But this isn't possible based on what we know about these natural laws of existence, namely the universal truth of impermanence and the cycle of rebirth. Let's talk about masturbation. There's some places that will teach you that masturbation is all wrong, it's immoral, you should never do it. This isn't how one should understand masturbation. Instead, you need to understand what masturbation is and then how it's applied and what you might be working towards if you end up choosing to do masturbation. So since the Buddha is teaching about the natural law of gamma and not causing harm to other beings because that harm can then come to you, the first question you might ask yourself about masturbation is who are you causing harm to? What being are you causing harm to? Who's the other being that you're causing harm to? Well, of course, you're not causing harm to any other being because there's only one being involved and that would be you. So you're not causing harm to other beings through masturbating. So right away, you can see that there's not harm to other beings, so other beings aren't gonna harm you from this. But then you can look at masturbation as if you did masturbate and you did this excessively, maybe 15 times a day or 20 times a day, your own craving in your mind can go to an elevated state and now this can erode the condition of your own mind. So you would like to kind of temper this. If you're gonna to choose to masturbate at any given time, you would like to ensure that you're not doing it excessively or obsessively because the craving is gonna arise in the mind and cause you complications. But then also, you might look at how you can use masturbation in a wholesome way. Let's say that you have three, four, five, ten different boyfriends or girlfriends. And now you've been learning in this teaching about how that's going to impact you and it's going to cause harm in your life. And now you've decided that you're going to move to just one partner. And that's something you're going to actively work towards to come down to just one partner but yet you have this sexual craving that's quite high and that's going to be challenging for you to come down to one partner. Maybe you decide to use a little bit of masturbation here and there in order to bring your craving down in order to get down to just one partner. Now this is an improvement in your life. In this situation, you've used masturbation to improve your life. Or let's say that you have one partner and now at some point in your life, you guys have decided, both of you, that you're no longer gonna have sex and you're gonna move closer to this enlightened mental state. And you guys might choose to no longer have sex but still maintain your relationship. You might choose to use some masturbation in that situation to decrease your sexual craving and that is beneficial and helpful. It's improving your life. So masturbation isn't all wholesome and it's not all unwholesome either. It's all about how you're using it and ensuring that you're working towards the ultimate goal, which would, the first step would be to just have one partner and ensure that you're not masturbating excessively or that you might be using it to eliminate certain cravings. So if someone had a choice to either go out and rape somebody or go out and cheat on their partner or perhaps masturbate, 
it would be much wiser to masturbate. Or if you are have a choice of going out to have paid sexual services or masturbate, you might choose to masturbate. So this is how you can use it in a beneficial way, but you just need to be observant of the mind that you don't allow it to go into obsessive part where you know, 15, 20 times a day that this is what's happening. So you can observe that about your practice and understand that it's not immoral to do this, that you're not causing harm to somebody else. Something like sex with animals, an animal can't give you consent to have sex with them. This is why if you did this, it would be very unwise. The Buddha doesn't talk about animals here, but of course he talks about whose violation entails a penalty. And he talks about stealing in the second precept. So you can see that having sex with animals would be very unwise. And this is why most people don't choose to do that. But if somebody did choose to do this, this is where there can be injury, there can be disease and illness and other things like this. Then the last thing about this precept you might think about is pornography. If you've ever indulged in pornography, where this is typically coming from is the mind is looking for some kind of excitement or some kind of intimacy. And someone might crave intimacy with another person. But instead of maybe going in that direction, they might go in the direction of pornography. And as the mind goes deeper and deeper into this, it almost becomes like a fantasy world. And this person is actually moving away from what they really desire and what they really crave and what they really want, which is intimacy with a person. And as they go deeper into this fantasy world of pornography, it's actually harder and harder to come out of that because now the experiences that you have in that fantasy world, even when you start having sex with an actual human being, then you end up experiencing a lack of stimulation because you've been so deep into this fantasy world that now the real world contact with an intimate partner can't quite live up to what you experienced in this fantasy world. And also in that situation, there can potentially be excessive masturbation. There can be support of other people to act out these scenes who are now having sex with multiple people. So there's certain harms that are being caused here. And each one of these things that I just talked about, whether it's on this precept or any of the other precepts, the book has extensive detail about all of these. So you can read the book and see what I talked about because something like pornography, I talked about it in quite a bit of detail to help you see all the potential harms and challenges with that, along with these other things as well. Here, I'm just kind of giving you a summary in class and opening up to any questions that you might have. But if you read the book, you'll see a lot more details on each one of these aspects of these precepts and how to apply them in our day-to-day life. So I'll pause here and see what questions you guys might have about this particular precept. You can put that into YouTube or into Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. I'm seeing a question here in Zoom. It says, could you please teach about defense of our own body. Okay, so back to the first precept. You know, I'm not sure what you're looking for there, Mintu, about the defense other than if you need to defend yourself, you should, and you would like to do that with the least amount of harm as possible. But your best defense is the decisions that you make that lead up to that situation. So for example, if I went out at 2 a.m. in the morning and I went to a bar or maybe some place where they're using drugs and alcohol and then I'm standing outside while the bar closes and now there's a fight, 
I've made a whole lot of decisions that have led up to that situation. And now I'm put in a situation where I need to defend myself. So some of the best decisions you can make is prior to ever getting into a situation where you might potentially need to defend yourself. So in terms of going out at certain times of day, in certain terms of visiting certain types of businesses or establishments, in terms of associating with certain friends, in terms of your right speech. Having right intention, right speech, and right action will help ensure that harm doesn't come to you and that you're not in a situation where you need to defend yourself. But as I used as an example, you might be in a situation where all you're doing is at home in bed sleeping and somebody breaks into your house at 2 a.m. in the morning. You haven't done anything whatsoever. You're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, which is potentially being at home and, and, and sleeping at night. So in this situation where you need to defend yourself, you would like to do it with the least amount of harm as possible. And then always realize that in other situations, there's a whole lot of decisions you can make that ensures your protection. So let's just say I go out at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, if I'm at a restaurant and I'm just sitting there eating and minding my own business, if somebody came up to me and started to become aggressive and hostile, I would just choose to leave if I could, right? If there's no ego there, then you can just leave. But if there's ego there, you might decide to stand up, puff up, try to get into a fight, and this can be very problematic for you. But if you understand that the goal is not to fight this person and show them who you are and that they can't step on you and this kind of thing, if you can just choose to leave, if you don't have a personal existence view and you don't have conceit, there's no reason to stand there and fight. It's not going to create any kind of benefit whatsoever. Sure, the other people in the restaurant, they see me walk out and leave. They think I'm a wimp or whatever. So be it. It doesn't matter to me. Those people aren't involved in my life. And I can just leave and I can be safe. I can get in the car and I can drive down the street, have no problems whatsoever. But if I stand up and I fight, let's just say this guy pulls a knife or this girl pulls a knife or a gun or say there's other friends with them and they attack me. Say the police show up. There's all kinds of problems. And for what reason? Because of conceit? Because of personal existence view? It's very unwise to do that. The only time that I would end up causing harm to somebody in a situation like that is if I'm aggressively being attacked and I need to get this person off of me or get them off of my friends or family that's around me. But if I can just leave quietly and diffuse the whole thing, then that's what I would prefer to do because there's a whole lot of decisions you can make that lead up to that before you have to put your hands on somebody and do something like that. Because once you do that, now there's a whole lot of other harms that can come to you based on potentially needing to cause harm to this other being. So if that answers your question, then great. If not, feel free to ask some follow-ups and I'll answer you if you have some specific situations that you would like to discuss related to defense. I'm not seeing any questions in YouTube and I don't see any more in Zoom either. And for all of the, you that are tuning in that maybe tune in on Facebook, I apologize that Facebook's not working today. Just some impermanence there that Facebook needs to sort through in order to allow us to continue to live stream there. So I'm going to move forward to the fourth precept to help you guys understand this particular precept. And here I'll read this one first and then we'll talk about it. The fourth precept is abandoning false speech, refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. 
Okay, so the very rudimentary translation of this is no lying, right? And this sounds very rudimentary. It sounds like a rule. It sounds like it's black and white and this kind of thing. Well, the Buddha is teaching you a lot more than that. He's giving you illuminating language to understand not only that you shouldn't lie, but he's explaining to you the reason why in the precept. Because you would like to develop this mentality of being a truth speaker and build your reputation that you are a truth speaker that each time you open your mouth to talk that more and more people around you realize this person always speaks the truth they're one to be relied on they're trustworthy they're dependable they're not a deceiver of the world because if you lie people are going to figure that out in your personal and professional relationships will struggle. You're not going to find that it's going to be very easy to navigate personal and professional relationships as long as you're lying. Not only are these people are going to find out and then that harm is going to come back to you, but your mind needs to be obsessive about figuring out what did you say to one person versus what did you say to another person. And this is not going to promote a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy with your mind constantly trying to figure out what you said to one person versus what you said to another person. So by you speaking the truth, not only are you a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world, but you also are able to have much more peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy in the mind because you don't have to be obsessively trying to figure out what you said to one person versus another. The Buddha understood this so well that this is another teaching that I put in here. This isn't part of the five precepts, but it's a separate teaching that he teaches. That here he's teaching to his son Rahula. Rahula is the Buddha's son. Oftentimes people have the misperception that the Buddha left his family and never came back, that he turned his back on them. But this isn't true. He left for six years in order to train his mind. And having done so, his mind was in a much better condition with deep wisdom to then come back and help so many people in the world. And part of the people that he helped was his family, his son, his wife, his mother, his cousins, and other members of the family end up ordaining with him and training their mind. And they got to enlightenment, most of them. And this was because he chose to come back to that region of the world and they chose to ordain with him. It got to the point where it was so bad that his father actually came to the Buddha begging and pleading for him to stop ordaining people from the royal family because his dad was attached. He was craving, he was desiring, he wanted this family to stay together thinking that it was going to be permanent. So he pleaded with the Buddha to no longer ordain any members of the royal family. So what the Buddha decided to do is implement guidance that if you would like to ordain with him, you needed to have your family support. Because what he realized is that when people are coming out of their household, it puts strain on the other members of the family. So if there's a certain family that lives together and one of those members, whether it's a son or daughter or a husband or a wife or a partner, choose to leave the family to ordain, then the rest of the family is going to need to work and do things a bit more because now this person has left the family. So this is in place even to today. Here in Thailand, if you go get ordained, 
Your family are the first people to cut the hair from your head. They will take a few hairs and they will cut your hair. So your mom, your dad, your grandparents, if you have a partner or children or people like this, and it's a sign of support to show that they're supporting you and becoming ordained. And this is a very wise thing to do that before you go off and get ordained, that you ask for support and to see if the family's gonna be okay without you. And they might need some time to adjust to you going away. So the Buddha spent time with his family after he got enlightened and he actually helped a lot of them along with the people in the community. Anybody who came to seek guidance and sincerely had an interest to get to enlightenment, he helped them. So here, this is a teaching to his son Rahula. He says, even so unwise and empty Rahula is the recluseship or life practice of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train thus. I will not speak a falsehood, even as a joke. Okay, there's a few things to learn here related to this teaching. The first thing that I like to point out is that a Buddha tells jokes, right? Sometimes when you see pictures of the Buddha and the pictures that I use and other people use, he's in this meditation posture looking all serious. And you might think that an enlightened being or a Buddha is just serious all the time. No, a Buddha tells jokes, right? A Buddha is going to be cheerful and uplifting and, and they're going to have a very fulfilling life. So they tell jokes. So if you'd like to tell jokes, go tell jokes, go have fun, go laugh, go enjoy life. That's what being enlightened is all about, is getting rid of all the discontentedness so that you can thoroughly enjoy life. So a Buddha is a human being, just like you and I. He tells jokes. But when he told jokes, he didn't even tell a lie. Because if you can imagine this being who was really wise, if he was in classes like this, sharing teachings with students, and he was speaking all the truth, but then on the side, he was lying, and he was deceptive, and even when he was telling jokes, he was lying, people wouldn't know whether or not he was telling the truth or whether he was lying when he's teaching classes, right? So he built up his practice to the point where he didn't even lie when he told a joke. He just ensured that he was always speaking the truth. Still, he encourages students to investigate and examine his teachings and not believe what he says, but students will be much more likely to do that if they know this person never lies, even when they tell a joke. So you could build up your practice to be that way as well, where you never tell a lie. And this will be working in the direction of establishing barami, we talked about this a couple of classes ago, that there's a Thai word here in Thailand called barami. What barami is, is the one who people listen to. A person who establishes barami, they're gonna be practicing the Eightfold Path really closely. And they're also gonna not be lying or deceitful. They're gonna be trustworthy. They're gonna be dependable. They're gonna be one to be relied on because they can be influential in their personal and professional relationships, in their communities and in the work. If you have barami, it means you're the one who people listen to and people develop this over time. You can't just snap your fingers and have barami, but you develop it over time by more and more people in your life realizing that you only speak the truth. And that's what the Buddha did, is he ensured that he was always speaking the truth, even when he tells a joke. The other thing that you can gain from this teaching is where the Buddha says, 
so too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil I say that one would not do. So that means if you have people around you that lie, what the Buddha is saying is there's no evil that that person is unwilling to do. And you might consider, should I continue to involve this person in my life? Are they a life partner? Are they a friend? Are they a coworker? Are they my employee? Are they my babysitter? Are they taking care of my elderly parents? If you find that people are lying in your life, you should consider what the Buddha is teaching you here is that there's no evil that they would not be willing to do if they're willing to tell a deliberate lie. So it's wise to include people in your life that are trustworthy, independable, that they can be relied on. If you include people in your life that are lying and you find out that they're lying and you continue to involve them in your life, the lies that they're making, they're affecting them, but because of your choice to include them in your life, this is your gamma. So if your life partner or other people in your life are lying and you continue to be in these relationships, understand that you can be impacted by that because of your choice to involve these people in your life. So for you, you would like to be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. And you might even choose to go the extra step of ensuring that the people you involve in your life, whether they're on a personal level or a professional level, that they are also speaking the truth as well. Let me see what questions you guys have on this particular precept. Again, you can put that into Zoom or into YouTube and I'll see those and be able to answer your questions for you. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So that means you guys must be understanding this to a certain degree. I'm going to move on to the fifth precept and help you guys understand this one. The way that this one reads is the following. Refraining from strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. Well, again, if you're investigating the teachings of the Buddha and the words of the Buddha right away, you should investigate this word heedlessness because you need to know what does this word heedlessness mean. So if you get a dictionary or you look online and you search that, you'll come back with what I'm sharing here, which heedlessness means that it is careless, thoughtless, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, or unmindful. So the Buddha is describing taking substances that cause heedlessness. So if you remember back to the Eightfold Path, that seventh step of right mindfulness, what mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. And specifically those four foundations of mindfulness, of bodily sensations, feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. And in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to have awareness of the mind because this is what's going to help you purify the mind. If you can see the wholesome things that are going on in the mind, you would like to support those, encourage those, and don't allow them to fade. And if you can see certain unwholesome things in the mind, you can eliminate those from the mind. And that's how you purify the mind is by having mindfulness or awareness of mind. So anybody who's on the path to enlightenment, they would be interested in purifying their life practice and the decisions that they're making to ensure that they're not taking substances that promotes heedlessness or this careless, thoughtless, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, or unmindful state of mind. Because when you promote unmindfulness or unawareness in the mind, then you're more likely to do all the other things that we're talking about, whether it's killing or stealing or sexual misconduct or lying, 
when you have substances on board in the body, you're more likely to do all of those things. If you talk to people who are in prison or in jail, they might be there for murder or robbery or some other offense. But if you talk to enough of them, what you'll find is about 80% of them are there because of substances that cause heedlessness. They might have been charged with murder or robbery, but if you talk with them, they would tell you that they would have never murdered that person if they weren't on some substance, or they would have never robbed that bank or robbed that gas station if it wasn't for the substances that they were taking. So substances cause all kinds of complications in our life, and it will hinder you from being able to progress to enlightenment because it's promoting just the opposite of what you're trying to promote in the mind, which is this natural ability to cultivate mindfulness or awareness of mind. Now, that's what I would like to share with you about this teaching. But now we need to look at some of these things more closely because there's substance like marijuana that we have irrefutable evidence that there's some medical benefits with this plant. But there's ways that you can take this safely and address the medical concerns. And there's also ways that somebody could take it with promoting heedlessness in the mind. There's research that shows that there's children who have seizures about 20 times a day and they give them a little bit of CBD oil on the tongue. And now this child doesn't have seizures for six months. And this shows us that yes, this plant absolutely has medical benefits. But in that situation, what you're typically looking for is a plant that is very low in THC and very high in CBD. These are the two parts of the plant that the THC promotes the high or the heedlessness and the CBD promotes the medical qualities that the plant has to be able to bring some medical benefit to the body. So in this situation where you're applying marijuana for medical purposes, you would look for a very low THC and a very high CBD. And then you would like to look at how you're ingesting the plant. Because if you're ingesting it as an edible or a oil, this is not going to cause any harm to the physical body. Whereas if you were to smoke the plant, it's going to cause harm to the lungs. And this would be a result of your decisions. So there are people who are using marijuana for heedlessness, and this would be unwise. You would like to purge that if you're currently doing that. But if you're using it for medical benefits, a real legitimate medical purpose, then you might look at ingesting it as an edible or an oil, and you would look for a high... Uh, CBD and a very low THC. And then it's important to look at certain reasons why people are using marijuana because some people might say that it, it's a medical purpose that I have stress and I have anxiety and I'm going to use marijuana in order to eliminate my stress and anxiety. But in reality, the marijuana isn't going to solve this problem because what's causing the stress and anxiety is the craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And the marijuana isn't going to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment. It's just going to push the stress down. It's going to cover up the anxiety. But as soon as the mind no longer is using the marijuana, then that stress and anxiety is right there again. The mind hasn't cultivated the wisdom of how to address this problem of stress and anxiety through eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So if you're using marijuana for stress, anxiety, things like this, understand that that's never going to solve the problem. It's just covering it up. What you would like to do is use 
the teachings of the Buddha to cultivate wisdom, eliminating craving, desire, attachment. That's what will solve the stress and anxiety. And then if you have some other medical ailments that you would like to talk about, we can discuss those and how marijuana might be applied to them as an oil or as a edible with high CBD and a low THC. Cigarettes are actually just the opposite. There's no medical benefit to cigarettes whatsoever. And we've kind of learned this over time. There was a you know period of time where lots of people in the world smoked, and now less and less and less and less people are smoking because we've realized that there is no beneficial purpose to smoking cigarettes and that it's going to cause this physical body harm. And that's why there's all kinds of medical ailments that occur because of smoking cigarettes. And then also secondhand smoke as well can cause harm to children or adults or animals that might live with us. So it's wise to completely purge that from your practice, eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, and gradually work towards eliminating cigarettes. Because as you do that, as you eliminate any craving, desires, attachments, it usually works best when you do it gradually. If you do it abruptly, the mind doesn't typically like that impermanence and it's kind of hard for it to maintain its practice. So it's not really a sustainable decision. But if you gradually decline over a number of weeks or months, then this is a more sustainable decision that the body and the mind can easily adjust to where it almost doesn't even know that that's what you're doing because you're taking these incremental steps towards eliminating cigarettes. Something like prescription medicines, you know, prescriptions are very helpful for us. They've been invented and there's a lot of prescriptions out there that will be helpful in order to cure certain ailments or address certain ailments but you need to be aware and conscious of the types of medications that you're taking because some of them can be addictive and if you are meeting with something like that and you realize that a doctor is prescribing a certain medicine that can potentially be addictive you might decide to have a conversation with the doctor about potentially selecting another medication so that you don't need to take that medication and potentially get addicted to it if it's the only option, then you would need to keep this in mind so that you can as soon as possible get off that medication so that there's not the potential that the body or the mind becomes addicted to the substance and then you have a challenge with heedlessness or this unmindfulness. Even something as simple as caffeine can actually promote heedlessness in the mind. That there's no reason why the human body needs caffeine Physically, we don't need it in order to sustain life. It's a stimulant or a drug that we've introduced because as the body feels tired or the mind feels tired and lethargic, we tend to use caffeine to lift us up and get in this more energetic state. But the problem with that is that it's just temporary and eventually one crashes or comes down from that. An enlightened being has trained their mind and cultivated the mind where they're not getting tired, they're not getting fatigued. When you're carrying around craving, desire, attachment throughout your day, where you're wanting things to be a certain way, when you get the things you want, you get those pleasant feelings, but when you don't get what you want, the mind experiences painful feelings. And this can be very tiring for the mind. The mind and the body can become very fatigued. You can come home at the end of your day and just feel completely wiped out 
because of craving, desire, attachment. And if you turn to caffeine as a substance to lift you up, then you're going into this state where you have energy, but then you're going to ultimately drop off. And what you would like to do is maintain your wisdom and build up your wisdom so that you can eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and you're no longer experiencing that up and down effect of the caffeine by completely eliminating it from ingesting it. And just like other things that I've talked about, when or if you choose to do this is your decision. What you will find is that when you choose to eliminate caffeine, you'll get more clarity in your mind. It'll promote more mindfulness, thus getting you closer and closer to enlightenment. But when or if you choose to do that is your choice. And if you do choose to do that at any time, it would be wise to do that gradually to allow the body and the mind to adjust to it. That's what I needed to do. I had to gradually move away from caffeine. And as I did, I noticed there was headaches, significant headaches. I noticed there were shakes and trembling. This is an indication to you that this is indeed a drug and the body's going through withdrawal. Just like the body would go through withdrawal with something like heroin or something else, it will go through withdrawal with caffeine. So you would like to gradually do this so that the body and the mind can adjust to no caffeine. You would also like to be aware and look at your sugar intake because if you take an excessive amount of sugar, the mind and the body will go into the sugar high and then there's a crash. So you would like to kind of monitor that and ensure that you're not ingesting a significant amount of sugar, taking the mind up into this high and then it crashing and coming off the other side. So monitor that and ensure you're looking at that. There are some people that will share with you that they take psychedelic substances in order to help them get to enlightenment. This is not how you would get to enlightenment. There's no aspect of getting to enlightenment that involves psychedelic substances. It's actually hindering somebody from being able to get to enlightenment. There's a certain aspect of the mind that is experienced as part of taking psychedelics that can kind of make people think that it's somehow beneficial to them. But what the path to enlightenment is about is about understanding the mind, understanding these natural laws of existence, and training the mind to do that reflection and be inward looking and be introspective about what's going on in the mind. Oftentimes, psychedelic substances can kind of mimic some of this, but the mind hasn't figured out how to do this by itself yet. The mind is still relying on a substance to be able to try to do that. So when you stop taking the substance, the mind doesn't have the ability to do that naturally on its own. So what you would like to do is cultivate the mind to be introspective and inward looking through its own natural devices. And you will be able to cultivate the wisdom to be able to do that and do that on a consistent ongoing basis to be able to promote the qualities of mind that you need in order to train it to get to enlightenment. As long as the mind has craving, desire, attachment, for a psychedelic substance, it's not going to be able to experience the qualities of the enlightened mind where it's peaceful and joyful. So this is everything that I have to share with you guys on the five precepts. And I'll just open up to any and all questions you guys have about the five precepts or anything else that you guys would like to talk about. You guys should know that you can put that into Zoom or in YouTube and I'll see it in the comment section or you can raise your hand in Zoom and I'll be able to call on you and answer any questions that you have. Okay, it doesn't look like you guys have any questions. I'm not seeing any hands raised in Zoom or any questions in YouTube. 
So you guys must be understanding to a certain degree. And at any point that you have questions, you can ask those questions. I'm pleased to answer any questions for you. That's part of learning is that you might need some clarifications at different times. In the book, as I mentioned, there's a lot more detail than what I'm able to cover in a class like this. So if you haven't yet read the book, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and download the free version. You can print that or you can order it through Amazon as a Kindle version or a printed version. And you'll be able to see what I wrote about the five precepts. And that will help to inform your practice and gain more and more wisdom about the five precepts. In our next class, next Sunday in the group learning program, it's going to be based on chapter eight. Chapter eight is titled The Three Poisons, Craving, Anger, and Ignorance. This is where we're now gonna take this understanding that you have from the Four Noble Truths of just understanding the problem as being craving, the Buddha is gonna pull back the layers and go deeper into it and helping you to understand these three individual problems of craving, anger, and ignorance. Not only are we gonna talk about the problems, but we're gonna talk about the solutions. So we're gonna talk about how these three individual pollutions of craving, anger, and ignorance manifest in your life and the problems that they cause. And then I'm gonna share with you the antidotes or the remedies to these so that you can then apply them and uproot this out of the mind. And as you're doing that, getting that pollution out of the mind, this is where you see more and more liberation or freedom of the mind, more and more qualities of enlightenment coming through because you're eliminating more and more of the pollution of the mind. Then on Wednesdays, we're gonna be doing our fourth class of our four-part series where I'm gonna be sharing with you Buddhist chanting. We're gonna be practicing Buddhist chanting and then we're gonna be using Buddhist chanting to ease into meditation. We're gonna be doing meditation as a group and you're welcome to attend that. Even if you haven't attended any of the other classes, you can attend and do the meditation with us. And then of course we have the Saturday class with the Pali Canon in English study group that you're always welcome to join at any time. It's a different type of class than what you're used to here. Some students decide to go through this program at least once or twice before moving into the Pali Canon in English study group, but it's always there and available to you. Some students might even choose to just show up for the meditation and that's all but that's up to you what you might choose to do. But all of these are available to you, all the learning resources, all of the classes and everything else. So thank you all for attending the class. Thank you for your dedication to learning and your diligence. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.